Hey, Sarah. Yes, Josh? Are you ready? I think so. Great. But before we start, we here at the Puppa Pod, along with Dixon Place, stand with love in solidarity with Black, Indigenous, and persons of color in our communities and across the country against racism, white supremacy, and police brutality. And for more information and specifics on our respective anti-racism statements and plans of action, please visit DixonPlace.org and ShakeOnTheLake.org to find out how we're listening, learning, and working within our communities. Black Black Lives Lives Matter. Hi, my name is Janie Geyser, and I think puppetry is confusing. Puppetry is hard because a lot of people don't understand what you're doing and they're afraid of it and they're intimidated by it. And they come up to you after a performance, they go, I really like that, but I don't understand it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the puppet pod the podcast in which we try maybe fail sometimes but i think more than not succeed at talking about a primarily visual medium in this primarily auditory one i'm with as always sarah stably my trusty maker of things and making it happen sarah how's it going oh it's dandy how are you i'm hanging in it is very humid today very very hot today yeah, and you're this time you're coming in from New York City. Yeah, beaming in from Brooklyn uh, for this episode. That's very true. And you are still in our lovely hometown of Perry, New York. I am, and it's just as humid here, but very, very windy outside. Ah, we could use a little bit of that wind here in New York. It's just kind of thick yeah. and like walking through when a dog like breathes out of its mouth, like ah, ah, that thing. That's what it's like outside right now. Wow, that just sounds really charming. Yeah, I miss well, those New York City summers. <laughs> that's New York for you. Charming city. Though I do have to say I am quite heartened to see how people are following the rules and really like looking out for one another and wearing their masks and standing six feet apart and the uh, ways that people have, you know, made it work through outdoor dining and restaurants. And it's, it's really awesome to see. Yeah, I think in Perry, we get a little bit insulated just because we are such a small place that it does happen here. But when you don't notice it as much, I suppose, until you're in a city where there are a lot of people in one space and then you have to be very conscious of it. So yeah, no, that's really good to hear though. I'm happy to see it happening. Also, it's just hard to stand next to each other when it's that hot. It's like, get your body heat away from me. I don't want to be anywhere That is very true. That is very true. Well, uh, I'm so excited, Sarah, because today we have someone beaming in from another different place in the country. Coming to us from Los Angeles is just an incredible human and also artist that I've had the very good fortune to be able to learn from and work with in one of my very first shows in New York a long, long time ago. Janie Geyser is with us today. Janie, hi! Hey, so nice to be here with y'all. You know, in LA, it's actually not that hot. Oh, the one time yeah. where New York is hotter than LA. Yes, yes. <laughs> we will catch up, though. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, the whole world will catch up and we'll all be oh, very hot yes. soon. Oh, my uh, gosh. Wop, wop, climate change. <laughs> <laughs> um, Janie, how have you been holding up during this wild, wild time in our world? 
Well, I mean, I guess like everybody else, it's kind of a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, but it's also kind of like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Like you get up in the morning and you kind of have the same routine in the morning and maybe a similar routine at night. And in between there's little variations, but I don't know. It's kind of Groundhog Day-ish for me. Yeah, um, I feel I'm, that. I'm lucky in LA. I live in a little house and I have a yard. So I have places I can go without my mask. Yeah. and sit and read and occasionally even have friends like over to the front yard eight feet apart in masks not often but sometimes and i live in a walking neighborhood i can walk up to griffith park and so walking reading working on some films not as much puppet stuff right now and just you know eating those are kind of the things that make up my day yeah yeah um i'm curious you were talking about your making some things, maybe not so much puppet oriented, but how has that process been for you as well? Because of the roller coaster of this thing that's happening to all of us, how have you felt your creative energy has been? And has have you been motivated? Has it fluctuated? What, what's that been like it, for it, you? It's definitely fluctuating all the time. And so within a day, I go through the whole roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I just try to do what is present. You know, but mostly, yeah, reading and bouncing back between making and reading and walking. That's kind of the balance. And then some days I just feel like, oh, how can this keep going on? And other days I kind of forget about it because actually in the summer when I'm not teaching, I kind of have a similar day yeah. to what I'm having now, but it's by choice. And <laughs> right. now it feels a little bit proscribed. Mm -hmm. But still, I feel really lucky. I have a job. I'm not you know, hungry. I'm, and yes, my life is, is not bad. It's just like everyone else, kind of narrow. Yeah, yeah. Narrow and different. Um, you were saying that you were also a, a teacher during the year. And I'm curious mm -hmm. how that transition has been for you, especially at your school, which is, you know, this highly technical school Cal Arts, um, how has the transition to online teaching gone for you? Oh, it was, I mean, I really admire the students who were able to make that transition. We sort of all just landed in this Zoom world together, as many of my colleagues have. And there was definitely a dip where people were, we were all kind of depressed and yeah. Confused and things that you might normally see in person or touch or feel couldn't happen. But then everybody figured out ways to kind of transcend that and to communicate across the screens. And thank goodness for the virtual background. <laughs> <laughs> it provides, it's, it has a kind of materiality that yeah. mirrors some of the play that you do with objects. So yeah, and thank goodness for the iPhone and all of the like media apparatus that are so easily available to us. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so now I'm faced with the fall, and at the moment I'm thinking of teaching hybrid classes, mm -hmm. meaning we'll we'll meet occasionally in person, and then we'll meet online and. I'm still awaiting whether California is going to allow that. Yeah. You know, at the moment, the colleges can choose their forum as long as we're following various rules. Like my classes will be very small, mm -hmm. like six, six to eight people. 
instead of maybe 15 or 20 sometimes. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of beauty to that. I feel like we can have a more intimate experience. And the thing I'm thinking about the most is how to create community in each class yeah. and to give ourselves sort of that space for the class to shift according to what's best for that community in the class. Yeah. And, and we'll meet outside a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I did say I have to have rooms that have a window or a door to outside because mm -hmm. that'll make me feel safer. And yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's really hard. It's actually really hard to think about, to plan for, and to wonder how the students are thinking. You know, I'm actually going to meet with three of my like mentees tomorrow just to kind of talk and see what they're thinking and what their perspective is and how they're thinking about the fall. Because you can, so the students could stay home mm -hmm. and not come to campus and do all their classes remote. So a few people who have health issues or just feel safer staying at home are doing that. But I think most art students want to be in person if possible. Yeah, yeah. It's we've made a similar transition where I teach as well. And I appreciate that idea about community because you're totally right. How do we, not how, I wanted to also make it very clear and transparent that we all know this is difficult. We all right. are experiencing the same thing. So whatever room and accommodations I can make for you, you know, to try to make this better, you know, and not feel like you've been cheated out of an experience. Mm -hmm. um, I was so happy to do and, you know, similarly to to you i'm sure i was just so proud of how the kids rolled and adapted and how we were as a, a department but also the larger institution also able to give them flexibility and you know make classes pass fail or not count mm -hmm. at all and you know it, it just felt nice like we were actually honoring what they were going through in a way that felt different from how we normally do yeah i mean there were students who made amazing things so it's also really moving to me yeah, to see yeah. how people in this kind of duress, you know, actually could transcend that and find something to share, you know. Yeah. So. I, I work with a lot of young scientists or aspiring oh. scientists in, in my work, and we introduced them to Carl Sagan and his pale blue dot mm. writing and kind of use that as a prompt for their, their work. And it was just so awe-inspiring to see them giving their like messages of hope for the future and what science can do. And I just wish the majority of America felt that way about science <laughs> right. right now. Right now, we need people to listen to science. Oh, it's wild. It's wild. Um, but I, I'm curious for you and for people out there that might be listening that aren't so familiar with puppetry. Can you talk about the ways that puppetry is really one is it's difficult to translate to online, but mm -hmm. why specifically that in-person nature of this kind of work is a lot more difficult for us to figure out how to send through a screen? Mm hmm. Well, I mean, I love the term that Dacia Posner and a lot of people use, material performance. Yeah. Um, that, that covers a, a wide range of what puppetry is and does, um, because it is the materiality and the sort of transmission, um, 
reception of the power of material objects and things and surfaces to to cause us to I don't know, ruminate about life in different ways that just objects and materials have have history we don't always know that history it might be even new history but they they allow us to jump off and go to a lot of different places so that's difficult in screens but i think the intimacy of screens could be a really cool place for puppetry to exist and in fact i did have students who did things like put a, a cardboard tube over the camera and use it to look around in a space and bring an object into that view. So I think using it almost like a toy theater is kind of exciting. And actually that's a class I'm teaching this fall. I was planning to teach it anyway. And I, I think that's gonna be a really exciting place to explore that. So yeah, I think it's the materiality of the form that makes it difficult, but the intimacy might work. Yeah. For people that aren't so familiar with toy theater, could you talk a little uh, bit about that oh, yeah. form? Because I know that was also <laughs> a form too that really inspired Dan to get into puppetry in a more serious way. Um, right. Dan Herlin, and I know you two go back and are, are old friends and collaborators. And right. I, I'm curious if you could maybe talk a little bit about what toy theater is for someone that maybe isn't so familiar. Well, toy theater is, I mean, specifically, it's a form that grows out of the 19th century in Europe. And, and like a lot of things that are happening now, like we have these cameras that can do these things and they allow us to see into protests and police brutality. Well, toy theater came about because of the advent of inexpensive printing. Mm. So sometimes one technology informs another. So artists would go to the theater and draw the characters and draw the prosceniums and then go to the printer who would print these up and sell them for a penny. They were called penny sheets. And so then anybody that could afford a penny sheet could go home, cut out these characters and make little performances with them. So it was a kind of amateur form. In, in England, it was sometimes called the juvenile theater and hmm. other places in Europe it'd be called paper theater. So it wasn't always for kids but there was definitely a home theater, pre-TV, entertain, miniature entertainment value to toy theater. Probably kept people occupied, but, but people from, you know, in the 20th century, from Laurence Olivier to you know, Paul Clay also made toy theater. So it's basically today we think about sort of miniature theater, performance with objects, cutouts, puppets in a small scale that is very accessible, usually tabletop and cheap, you know, yeah. like, like Great Small Works does their toy theater festival and really anybody can make a toy theater and, and they often do workshops with that too. So it's a, it's a very accessible form and it allows you to take big ideas and put them in small places. That's a really great way to put that. <laughs> Big ideas into small places. I love that so yeah. much. A lot of puppetry, especially like toy theater, you can do it without being a great actor. Yeah. So that's one of the things about puppetry that people who have ideas about time-based work or performative work, but they don't consider themselves to be actors 
and I put myself in that category, are really comfortable moving objects and things around. And you mm -hmm. can, even if you don't want to talk, you can have title cards, you can have recordings or other people talking. So it's a very accessible form where every, anybody can make theater. Yeah, I'm curious, were you ever a, a performer performer in, in more of like a traditional acting or dance sense of the word? Well, I mean, I come from a visual arts background, yeah. but I did have this time in my 20s where I was in this working at this nonprofit art center in Atlanta that had everything. It had a theater, it had a dance company, it had a gallery, and I took classes in the dance company, and I made one performance with a friend where we wore these puppets on our chest, but it was kind of like a dance performance, and from that... I realized I didn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that I really like being behind the scenes or on the side of the scenes. And because some, somebody who was looking at the performance for us and giving us feedback, he was like, all I could watch was that ring on your finger. And, and so then I realized, oh, okay, I have to think about my body. I have to make my body be the center of attention. Now, nah, I don't really want that. I want the things to be the center of attention. So I didn't really have a, a performing arts background. Although I was talking to my mom about this. In elementary school, I was in chorus. Yeah. And we had an amazing teacher, chorus master. And we would do musicals and things like that. I was always in the chorus, not the leads. But I learned about rehearsals. I learned about rigor. I learned about the process of making performance um, yeah. when I was little. And all of that actually really came to bear when I started wanting to make puppet theater yeah um, because I knew that there was this the thing in between the thought and the, the delivery it's a huge thing called rehearsal <laughs> <laughs> I have so many things I want to ask you about but since we're already there I think for a lot of people that aren't familiar with theater in general or puppetry specifically you know sometimes they're just like oh you just get up and you do it but that's not the case it's that thing of rehearsal that we were talking about and I wonder if you could talk about the importance of that process that rehearsal process in a, a puppetry form because it is so materials based and sometimes cameras mm -hmm. and a lot of the work that you do right, um, right. the necessity for really working and repeating and precision and choreography and all of these things to get to that moment that we want someone else to finally look at it. Right. And Josh, you're saying that because you experienced that with me. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, well, first you do start with the visual components and the objects. And I think early on, I, I had um, my first puppetry experiences in terms of making my own work were at the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta. And I learned there from the other puppeteers, like you make the puppet that does what you want it to do. So you don't just make a random puppet and then say, okay, now I'm gonna do this play with it or this performance. You think about what that is, what it should look like, how you want it to move, how you want it to function. And so you sort of build in the possibilities into the figure or object. So you might make something with very limited uh, movement or something that has kind of infinite movement. And then that's, that's what you bring into the rehearsal process. So from that, once there are enough objects made and enough places for the objects to work, you can start the rehearsal. And, and it really is, I don't know, what would it be like? It's kind of like carving. 
Mm, you know, yeah. that you start with something and you're whittling it down to what I would say the most essential movements. So you, you definitely want to explore a wide range of what the figure can do in relation to the story or the text or the, you know, impulses of the performance, which may or may not be super narrative in my case. Um, but then you want to get it down to the essentials. And that's really what the rehearsal is. And yeah. It can become very tiny, tiny, you know, uh, movements that, that have to be kind of perfected, but still with room, I really like there to be room for improvisation within, like if you're performing something 10 times, you want to have room to have ideas during that time. And I always hope that the puppeteers working with me understand that. And I hope that I give that to them that here's the outline of what we want to have happen. But within that, if you have an idea that the puppet might do something a little bit different, that's fine. Yeah, I always that's appreciate that. That's what keeps that. it alive. Yeah, hundred percent. You're totally yeah, right. As yeah, a puppeteer, yeah. that that freedom is so enjoyable to have, and you know, follow the thought for a moment to then go back and finish whatever the choreography is. But you're right; right. just keeping it alive is so nice. But it's about gesture. Yeah. It's about just like with acting; it's about presence. Mm -hmm. um, like, what is the presence of these objects on the stage? And in a way, you. You, f you know they're fake, but you also bring to them a kind of personhood. Yeah, yeah. Janie, we're going to take a, a short break, and uh, okay. we'll talk a little bit more about your work and puppetry and giving objects personhood when we come back. <laughs> okay, great. Let's face it, puppetry is hard. It's even harder during a pandemic. The form is predicated upon people being in very close proximity to one another to puppeteer something and having an audience to see it. But the field persists, adapts, and pivots. And the New York State Puppet Festival and Shake on the Lake are doing just that in presenting their brand new online puppetry series, NYSPF at Home. This series of brand new short puppetry works made for an online, on-screen audience features some of our favorite artists, many of whom have been and will be featured on the Puppet Pod, including Andy Manjuk and Dorothy James with Bill's 44th, a Zoom birthday, Just Another Lynching, an American horror story by the artist Jigetto, Out of Office by Emma Wiseman and Emily Zemba, and a brand new multimedia puppetry piece from Tom Lee. NYSPF at Home brings puppet artists from their respective quarantines to you in your home starting in October and running through January. For more information and virtual tickets, please visit www.NewYorkStatePuppetFestival.org. That's www.NewYorkStatePuppetFestival.org. Puppetry is hard, but watching it in your home is easy with NYSPF at Home. Okay, we're back with more Janie Geyser. Uh, Janie, you just said this really interesting thing about giving an object personhood. And again, for people that aren't familiar with puppetry, I know a lot of people have, you know, a very narrow view of it in this country. And a lot of it often revolves around Muppety style things. And for great reason, you know, the work that the Hensons did was just incredible and, you know, innovative and, and all of the things. But it 
doesn't also, we just don't often know as much about the contemporary adult world of puppetry and how we can do it with object theater too and giving these objects life or personhood as you were talking about. So I just wonder mm. um, if you can maybe talk a little bit more about this idea of how we imbue these objects or these figures or these landscapes even uh, with personhood mm-hmm. and what that means. Well, the artists who are presenting or performing are only doing half of the work. As you know, yeah. the audience brings the rest. So what, what, what we're setting up is a potential. Mm. Um, and the, the figures or the objects or the landscapes, they carry the potential to communicate to other people. And so you wanna be as precise and also as ambiguous about that as possible. When I was living in New York, my, my, one of my main jobs that I made a living at was doing illustrations for the New York Times book review. Oh, wow. And, and my, the art director there, Steve Heller, who I think still teaches at SVA, he's brilliant. And he taught me about ambiguity. Mm. Like one of the things about doing these drawings would be you don't want to make it so specific that it only applies to one moment of the review of the book. You want it to sort of embody the the review. And so that kind of ambiguity, I think, really is also in puppet theater is that you want to make objects and perform them in certain ways that allow for a certain kind of specificity and ambiguity. And that ambiguity really allows everyone to enter and to make it their own and to imbue whatever kind of personhood they want or to receive that and imbue the figures with that. And and that applies to working with found objects. It applies to all kinds of ways of working with material performance. Mm I like this idea of the importance of ambiguity in, in, in these kinds of work. And I also like how in that relationship that you were saying with the audience, because they also bring so much to the work and imbue these objects with what they think the gesture means or the emotionality mm-hmm. that the figure or the object is going through just is so much a part of our work. And I also like how you break up the traditional experience for how an audience can view the work, um, whether it's through film or these smaller audience groups that enjoy like something for a moment with, because it's toy theater and they're required to uh-huh. get closer in a more smaller screen or viewing space, or even this like peep show format that we worked on in Reptile Under the Flowers, where there was just one hole for one audience member to have one vantage point. And that was the only way that someone could experience that. And, uh-huh. uh, for you as an artist, I wonder if you could talk about what excites you as an audience member when you're thinking about these things for other audience members to experience. Uh, well, that particular show, I mean, there are a few, I've done a few walkthrough performances. And for me, they merge my background as a visual artist with the performance in that I'm able to make much more detailed kind of miniature worlds that are satisfying to look at in close range but also that I like different ways of viewing. Mm -hmm. So you might come upon one stage where you stand back and you're looking at an overall performance with maybe eight people in your group. And then you come to one of these singular peep shows where you have to take turns 
looking into this peephole. So there's a kind of social space created by the viewing experience that by the end you've gone through this thing with a group of people and shared space and looked at things differently. You know, when you look at something that's miniature, but you look at it close up, it becomes sort of larger than life because actually there's nothing else in your frame of vision. Yeah. Whereas when you're sitting back in a theater with an audience and looking at a stage, there's so many other things, which are very exciting. I love being distracted by, you know, the space of the theater and by somebody coughing over here. I think that's <laughs> part of the experience. Um, so I like to move between those different modes. And as a viewer, I'm excited by seeing things in different ways and by the variation in that. So even if I have a performance I'm doing that's sort of straight ahead, I might break it up by having, you know, a live feed camera section magnifying something small to make it bigger or that the space is defined through lighting or through different kinds of apertures. So I, I, I just happen to really like a variation in ways of seeing within a certain work. Yeah, I, I feel similarly. It's so nice to have that um, traditional theater going experience shaken up a little bit and, and, and mm -hmm. make you have to maybe even work for it a little bit too as an audience member, which I also find satisfying. Yeah, and I sort of do the same thing in my films. I make a lot of irises and things where your eye is drawn in certain directions and then back to the full frame. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about that because... You it, So far in our conversation, you've mentioned so many of these different interests that you've had and things that you've done in, in your work as an artist. And this is a question I'm, I'm always interested in for other artists is when someone comes up and they ask you, oh, what do you do? You know, which is like such a tricky and sometimes loaded question. <laughs> Depends on context. But do you have any like go to responses for people do you say you are a, a puppet artist or a theater artist that works I with just puppets say i'm an artist yeah i'm an artist yeah and then my practice kind of moves in between you know moving image film performance installation i don't do as much drawing anymore yeah but it's kind of informs everything still yeah i was we were talking to Jeanette um, a few weeks back and uh, our, our mutual friend, Jeanette Yu, and she was mentioning a story that surrounded around this question where it was, she said, you and Paul Zaloom and her and maybe a few other people were sitting in a backyard talking about this idea of how one identifies and Paul Zaloom was very adamant that we are puppeteers and we have to say we are puppeteers and it's going to help the field if we, you know, own this in a different way. And I think I do agree with that, but also I know that contextually that conversation can maybe lead you down a road that requires maybe more time and teaching than one might want to yeah. spend. I certainly don't run away from that, but he is much more a puppeteer. Yeah. That is what he does. And so a lot of times in my own work, I'm not even performing. Yeah. So I'm not a puppeteer. I'm a director. So, but I have no problem with that word, yeah. the puppet word. Definitely at different points in my career, I have had, you know, where, especially when I first started doing it, it was kind of like me and Paul and Theodora and Bread and Puppet and a few other I mean, there were plenty, but there were Eric Bass, but there was, you could name everybody who was doing contemporary experimental puppet theater in the U.S., you know, and now luckily you can't. Yeah. 
you know, and I love that, you know, but so, so when I would tell someone I, I was doing puppetry or was puppeteer, it was almost like a betrayal of my visual art life. Mm. You know, people would go like, why are you doing that? You know, yeah. it's kind of, it wasn't taken very seriously, but I, I embrace it as part of everything I do. Yeah. You just mentioned kind of like this pantheon of puppet artists just now <laughs> that were your contemporaries and people that you were surrounded with in your time when you're in New York. And I just wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about those early days and what some of the work you all were making and how it was being received. Because I also know that's when you met Dan and started, he got introduced to some of the work you were doing and asked you to make some puppets for him and how he right. started doing it. And between you and Dan and Theodora and Bread and Puppet and Eric Bass, that's just this like, you know, who's who of puppet artists <laughs> in, in uh, the New York at that specific time and place. And I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about that time. Well, well, I actually have to take that back to Atlanta okay. because I didn't come to New York until 86. Um, so they were all pretty established in New York at that point. Eric was somewhere else, maybe in Europe. Or maybe he was back and forth. But, but the Center for Puppetry Arts started to bring in contemporary adult performers. And that's where I actually met Paul and where mm. I met, I think, Theodora. I met Bruce Schwartz. I met, uh, oh, well, I had met the Bread and Puppet people. They had come to another theater in Atlanta. So so that was really where I sort of started those relationships, yeah. which helped me move to New York because I knew all those people. And, and also there were, it was the moment of sort of performance art and the new vaudeville, which Paul kind of fit into. I didn't really... But a lot of the downtown performance spaces were including experimental puppet theater in this kind of performance art umbrella. So we performed at PS122, and which is now something else, and Dance Theater Workshop, which is now something else, and La Mama, and St. Anne's. St. Anne's was a big place for puppet experimental puppet theater so that was sort of like the main circuit in, yeah. within town and then because it was new york you could you could get get in a car or van and go to boston or go to philly and do shows too so there was much more of a network when i came out to la i, was, I can't drive anywhere to do a <laughs> show anymore yeah <laughs> So it became harder, but it was, it, it was, and Roman Pasca, I forgot yeah. to mention him, you know, so um, we, we were all and still are good friends and appreciate each other's, you know, differences and aesthetics. And I feel really blessed to have had all of those friends in my life. And Paul's out here now. Right. Yeah. 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 Are you going to interview him? Uh, I would love to. Loaded, I don't know Paul. Loaded question. Uh, I don't, oh, I don't I'll, know I'll, Paul, but I would I'll, love to uh, meet I'll him make and that talk intro. to him. That would be great. I'll meet, make that intro because he's great. And he's doing these hilarious uh, little YouTube things. There. Have you seen them? Uh, yeah, he, I know um, Dixon Place is showing a lot of them as well oh, during quarantine. Yeah. Yeah, they're really funny. He and Lynn Jeffries are, and Sean Meredith are making those. And they're, <laughs> they're hilarious. Yeah. Totally object performance right. for this. This is what we're talking about. This intimate screen they figured out works really well for these objects. That would be really amazing to to mm -hmm. chat with Paul, uh, another person that has always admired their work and never quite got to be in the same room or, or nearby. But um, they should definitely be part of the series. 
Great, great. Uh, we'll put it on the list. <laughs> Thank you, Janie. <laughs> In talking with Dan, we realized that he is kind of the progenitor of this world of puppeteers, like this legion of people that have really started making work in the city in, in this form. And Dan will then credit you as being the person <laughs> that got him into puppetry and, and kind of, you know, preaching the, the, the gospel of puppetry as it were. But I, I just kind of love always knowing where other artists became inspired and from whom they got inspired mm. by. And mm -hmm. uh, you've already mentioned some names of people that came through Atlanta at that time. But were there other people in your world, even as a child, that you saw them doing these things that made you want to become a, a visual artist or a puppet artist? I did not have that thing that some puppeteers have of like knowing at five years old that you're going to make puppets and perform them in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you talked to, I think Roman was doing it as a kid. A lot of people did that as kids. That was not me. I encountered, I guess... I was thinking about this today, like, of course, there were puppets on TV. Yeah. But I think I'd kind of put them in the same category as like cartoons, mm. because they were already in this flat mediated medium. So I didn't really see any live puppet shows as a kid, except one little thing of like frogs playing guitars. And I <laughs> thought they were really dumb. Um, but when I was in college uh, at the University of Georgia, I ran across, I was just walking across campus. And this woman who was also a student, whose name I can't remember now, who changed my life, I guess, she was doing a little hand puppet show just on the campus. And I just sat and watched it for a while. And then I talked to her and I was just kind of suddenly fascinated. Yeah. You know? Very chance. And she showed me how she made her puppets. And then that summer I had a job like teaching kids in an art camp in Athens and I just thought, oh, well, let's do puppets. I didn't know what I was doing. And they loved it, and it was really fun. And and then I made, like, a stitched puppet as a project in a weaving class, you know. But I didn't really think about performance. I was yeah. more making, and then I would make, like, dioramas, maybe motorized figures as sculptures, still not thinking about performance. And then it was, I think... Vince, well, I, I saw Bruce Schwartz perform at the Center for Puppetry Arts. Now, do you know who he is? I, I don't know Bruce Schwartz, no. Okay, so you should look him up. Okay. He he was this kind of, he's still alive. I'm saying this in the past tense because <laughs> he doesn't do puppetry now. Gotcha. But he was like a wunderkind, and he made the most beautiful kind of, like if you took Victorian dolls and crossed them with Bunraku puppets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, like one person Bunraku kind of figures he made. And he would travel the world performing these beautiful, tragic stories with these puppets. But then he always started the show with a hand puppet show that was hilarious. Like <laughs> almost like an Elizabethan kind of twirling puppet booth show. So I, I, I just... Yeah, I, I saw him perform at the Center for Puppetry Arts. And that was the first time I thought, oh, this is kind of something somebody can do, you know? Yeah. Adult, adult. I had seen Bread and Puppet, but again, I didn't put them in the same category. They were more like theater, you know? Yeah. I loved what they did, but I still wasn't thinking puppet. But Bruce did that, and I, was, I, I came out to California on a cross-country trip, and I visited him and his house in Venice, and it was full of these beautiful dolls, and... He was really generous and sort of showing me how he made them. And so 
And I started making some more puppets, but still not doing anything. And at one point, Vince Anthony, who runs the puppet center, he was just, well, you should make a puppet show. And, you know, I was young enough and naive enough. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had become friends with people at the puppet center. So I had people who could work with me. And, and I was working at this other nonprofit place where there were composers and dancers. So I, I had a circle of people that I could bring into this little 15 minute show that I made kind of hand and rod puppet. And then I was just completely hooked, you know? So, so it really was all these fortuitous meetings. And in fact, I only knew about Bruce Schwartz performing because a friend of mine had seen like a late night PSA on TV, like about that. And she told me about it. You know, so I oh, wouldn't wow. have even known about it. Yeah. So anyway, so it, it was, it was not, through seeing, you know, a million things. It was through seeing a few choice things and having these chance encounters and then just starting to do it. And and I loved, I think the thing as a visual artist, which I love is sort of the solitary nature of making things. Yeah. But then I found out about community and making things together. And I really liked that too. So that's why my life still, I bounce back and forth between those two poles. I still need lots of solitary making time. And then I like the collaborative work too. You and me both, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like when you're with a group of people that you're really feeling, you know, a kind of aesthetic continuity with, then things happen that would never happen. And I really love that. Uh, I wish more of the world felt that way about collaboration. <laughs> Well, I mean, you have to you have to choose your collaborators. That is true. Yeah. Or they have to choose you. It has. It's really. I'm sure if you've been in situations where that didn't work. Mm -hmm. and sometimes yeah. you don't know it going in. I'm working on a project that is really exciting and very different for me, like a durational performance that never is the same. It's just depending on where we do it. It's different, and it's with two composers and another video artist. And it's just people walk in a room and things are happening and then they leave. You know, <laughs> it's hard to explain, but it's called Soundhouse. And so I really love that, that these two composers I'm working with, just the three of us together are making something that none of us would make by ourselves. Yeah, that's exciting. That is very exciting. Well, um, we're going to take a, another short break and I would love okay. to talk more about Soundhouse with more Janie Geyser when we come back. This episode of the Puppet Pod is brought to you by Dixon Place, New York City's most beloved downtown performance space for 35 years that brings you original theater, puppetry, circus arts, dance, visual art, and even podcasts about puppetry. That's right. Without Dixon Place, there would be no Puppet Pod. And starting October 17th and running throughout the month of October... The Raising Cane Campaign is a series of celebratory, uncanny, interactive, virtual, and outdoor fundraising events that'll challenge your imagination, stimulate your senses, and comfort your soul. Whether you're partisan, bipartisan, or nonpartisan, the Raising Cane Campaign offers something for everyone. 
from socially distant puppetry in a parking lot and a Lower East Side walking tour with real live performance to a mind-boggling virtual scavenger hunt, a very sexy talk show, a wacky cooking show, an online auction, and more. Presenting over 1,000 creators a year, Dixon Place inspires and encourages artists of all stripes and callings to take risks, generate new ideas, and execute new practices. Dixon Place has supported artists throughout the pandemic and, with your help, will continue into whatever shenanigans the future holds. Your donations and participation in the Raising Cane campaign will help sustain Dixon Place and make a future possible for artists and audiences alike. For more information and tickets, please visit dixonplace.org. That's www.dixonplace.org. Help keep the visionary fires burning at Dixon Place. And we're back with more Jamie Geyser. So Jamie, you said you were collaborating on this new show, Soundhouse, that you said was difficult to explain, which I think a lot of people that work in puppetry might might say about some of their work. But I wonder if you could maybe do your, your best stab at what the audience might see in a project like this. Okay, so it is another walkthrough show. The audience enters and sort of walks around the edge of the performance which has a series of four foot tall moving walls. It has some set pieces and lots of video going on. Real people are in there and people performing puppets are in there. And the concept of Soundhouse came from three things. I had worked with these two composers, John Eagle and Cassia Streb, on a different performance of mine where they were the composers for my show. And we really liked working together, but decided, oh, we want to do something where we're just starting from zero together. Uh, And so we each met and we had to come in with one idea each. And John came in and said, and he's really, you know, like a great writer about music and sound. And he understands sound conceptually in a way that I can't. Um, He said, I want to create a cube of sound in the room. Okay, so yeah, sure. Um, Cassia came in and she said, I'm really interested in bricks. The sound of bricks, the patterns of bricks, bricklaying, watching bricklaying videos. And mine was a little more (laughs) concrete that I had somehow gone down a rabbit hole of looking at video and archival materials about the people who work underground in the missile projects. The people who Mm. are there 24 hours a day underground in the missile silos waiting for the command to go. And luckily, they've never had to do it. But so they spend all this time down there and they're really bored a lot of the time. You know, so they play games, they make murals, they keep everything in working order. And they've also kept these missile silo operations very uncomputerized. So they're less hackable. They're still very 1960s with lots of beautiful dials. And I mean, they're dangerous things, but they're beautiful. And they're all those great 60s kind of greens and blue metal. So I I said, well, I want to do something with the daily routines of the Minutemen missile workers who can be male or female now. And so the puppets in the piece are those people. They're performing lots of tasks. So that was the common thing. We decided that it was 
task performance and that at any moment, like everybody's working in the space. So a great model would be when you look into the NASA control room or JPL and you see there's people in this corner working on an engine and there's somebody over here at a monitor and there's just, and you're looking at images from all over and different graphs and dials. That's what it feels like when you enter the space. So we've made all these modular kind of objects that can move around in the space and also sections. So we could say, okay, we're doing a performance where we're gonna do this section, this section, this section, in that order, or maybe next time it'll be in a different order. So there's this chance element to it. And then the bricklaying is always going on. There's at least one person who's always creating paths or structures with bricks and then tearing them down. And then the odd confluence was when we found out that bricks were a symbol in the murals of the Minutemen missile people. Like they made, they had these three bricks that would stack with these different, you know, kind of stars and, and hands. And yeah, so bricks were important to them too. And they, that those people still work underground. So that the, the subtitle is called Soundhouse, Everyone is Working. Mm. So when you walk in, it's like you're walking into a workspace and there's plenty to look at. And then there's also video that's pre-recorded, but also live video. And my job in the performance is I walk around and I film things and then they show up on different monitors and then like a live shadow box where people are doing things. So anyway, we were supposed to, we've done it a few times here in LA and we always just call it a work in progress yeah. because it's never finished. We are supposed to do it in October at the Vendum Museum here, which is this amazing, relatively new cultural space here, the Museum of the Cold War. Whoa. It's a collection of mostly Eastern European and Russian objects, books, archives, all kinds of things. And so it's, we're, we're totally, there's a music at the Venda series and we're supposed to be part of that. Now it'll be in fall 2021. Uh, so we were supposed to workshop it this summer again, but then we decided we shouldn't be in the same space together. Yeah. So we're, we're working on a website together about it. But yeah. So it's a really fun project because it's, different every time. We mostly work with the same performers. We've had to cycle people in and out when they can't be available. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really fun project. It sounds I don't so know exciting. if that made it at all clear. There's a little excerpt on my website if anybody wants to look at that. And that's JanieGeiser.com. Yeah, it's just as simple as you can be. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Janie, you started to kind of touch on it with this piece, but what are the stories that interest you or have interested you in the past? Hmm. Well, the last couple of, well, I'm working on a piece with uh, very slowly, and if he hears this, he'll go like, when are we getting together? Um, with a, a <laughs> former student who is a veteran, and we've been meeting, me and him and a few puppeteers to kind of figure out how to embody something about his experience in a life-size puppet. So just, I'm, I'm just always have been interested in, I don't know why I just read about people coming home from war. I'm fascinated with war and why it exists and the effect that it has. And so thinking about puppetry and war and what puppetry does is embody. And so figuring out how to somehow have these experiences in this artificial body 
that speak to some of his experiences and also just the experience of war and its effect on the body. So kind of thinking about it almost like Buto, like a Buto puppet show, even though I know really nothing about Buto, <laughs> but that's how I would describe it. That it's, I don't imagine we're gonna have a lot of language. You know, what we've done so far is we'll talk with Jason and he'll describe something and then we try to make something with the puppet that somehow uh, alludes to that experience. So yeah, this one is a six foot tall, kind of Bunraku puppet. It takes four people to operate it. And then uh, Soundhouse, the puppets are about 18 inches tall. Also Bunraku, I really got stuck on Bunraku. I really love what it can do, but it means you have to have three people. Yeah, three person puppet. operated, and it's so hard <laughs> to do that right now, yeah. But, but I also love Shadow, I love like, Sort of smaller rod puppet so it, it it is really like what's the story mm -hmm. and how can we best tell it what's the best form and scale for that story uh, but in, in going to like what kind of work like i like things that somehow have like almost a documentary beginning even if then mm. they go into fiction so like the piece before these two I did a piece about sort of landscape and health through the story of tuberculosis in LA, how people would come here for the cure in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and then before that, I did a, a piece that came from a newspaper article that I read because partly I wanted to do a true Bunraku going back to what Shikamatsu did, which is what was radical about Bunraku was the playwright who wrote for the sort of classic Bunraku worked from stories of the people in the town that he lived in. So like the lover's suicide, that was a real story. So I was like, I want to work from a real story and make a bunraku. So I had read the story of this girl who was kidnapped and murdered. And her sister was trying to help figure out who murdered her. So it was all mm -hmm. about more about the sister and more about loss and then the presence of absence and and landscape again too, because the girl's body, she was a teenager, was found two hours from LA in the mountains, just abandoned. Um, so, so yeah, it's a horrible, sad story, but um, yeah, just something about loss and determination and, and uh, absence. Yeah. Uh, I remember one form uh, that we worked on in Reptile Under the Flowers. This is what Nefri and I did inside of this peep show booth, which was at eye level for the audience. But mm -hmm. we were sitting on these almost skateboards. There were these little carts. So we were crouched mm -hmm. down so the audience couldn't see us. And we had these puppets that were on rods that we held above our heads. Uh, they were like rod puppets with little strings and you could make them like turn and then move and we made them look like they were walking so you couldn't quite see their legs but right. it was in that vantage point of the eye hole that we were trying to hit right. all of our marks so we were holding right. them above our head and then moving around in a circle around this set that was in the middle of this little space so you could... it was really hard to see what you were doing <laughs> yeah, it was so difficult to see what we were doing and it was also in this it was the old saint anne's so there was no air conditioning and it was 95 degrees oh, oh that was horrible <laughs> it, was, that was. it was really amazing but also like very warm <laughs> very very sweaty I remember so we got this like really and it wasn't it, 
Yeah, it was even May, I think. It wasn't that late in the right, summer. Right, right, right. May or June, yeah. Uh, but it was this really cool introduction for us, for Nefri and I, to like doing this new form and then this new way of, you know, creating a vantage point and hitting marks and making sure we were hitting these marks. And thankfully, you know, it went in like eight minute rotations. So we got to like right. take a minute, get outside, take a breath, drink some water, come back in. <laughs> keep it going but it was really really fun for us and a, a, a form that I had never seen before and I also really love that innovation well it gets to the beginning puppetry is hard <laughs> that's right that's right it's actually a very physical physical form yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, handspring puppet company has mm. that amazing book of theirs and uh, I can't remember if it's Basil or Adrian talks about like these, I don't know, 10 or 13 kind of rules about puppetry. And one of them is puppetry is pain and kind mm -hmm. of talks about this devotional aspect where you have to work through the physical discomfort sometimes in order to achieve the thing that you're going for. Right. And they talk a lot about puppetry is breath. Yes. Really appreciate that that's the center of what they do. Yeah. You know? And I think that's really true. They articulate it really well. Really beautifully. Yeah. Um, well, Jeannie, I think we've come toward the end of our time, but before we let you go, uh, we've been doing, we've been doing this segment called the, the puppet hot pot. The puppet hot pot. Which is more or less just a rapid f fire series of questions. And we're just curious okay, if we could we'll see what put happens. you in the puppet hot pot. Okay. Exciting. <laughs> Question number one. Have you developed any new hobbies in quarantine? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, that's uh, the rapid fire answer is I don't think I have. I, I think I'm just doing all the things I do. Yeah. And you have more time to finally do. Sort of. Yeah. Sort of, but time is weird, don't you think? Oh, that's the time weirdest like, that's ever been. It's bungee. Yes, it's it is. Bungee. Yes, it is. Yeah. What is a favorite place in the world that your work has taken you to? Oh, well, I went to Cuba in December. That was super exciting and beautiful. That's amazing. I'd love to go to Cuba. Do you have any really memorable collaborations, for better or for worse, in some of the work that you've made? I mean, I would just say all of them. Yeah. You know, the one I was just describing, a lot of my early collaborations. You know, I, I have a longtime collaborator that I've worked on all of my early shows with Chip Epson, who's a composer. We haven't worked together in a while, but I know we will, and we, we always stay in touch. I would say composers yeah. I've had really good relationships with, but yeah, I, I, I can't think of any really bad ones, and I probably wouldn't talk about those anyway. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, not by name anyway. Yeah. <laughs> what is one thing maybe that would surprise people about Dan Herlin and, and your time knowing Dan? Hmm. Oh, surprising. I don't know, he's funny. He's a control freak. <laughs> that wouldn't be surprising. No, that's not though. surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't think that way. I don't think in these, like, one thing. Yeah, like, yeah. somebody says, what's your favorite film? It's like, ah, ah. It's like, what's my favorite film this second? Yes, yeah. You know, then I could answer it. Yes, you know? yeah. Well, well, wait, wait, I was going to say about Dan. Oh, great. Dan, Dan, not about the, the surprise, but Dan and I collaborate on two of his shows. He got me to make puppets for two shows. And then he decided he would just do it himself. So let's just say <laughs> that co ended the collaboration. 
<laughs> but but we while we, while we were both still in New York, we would always look at each other's work and give each other feedback and very valuable you know relationships that way. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And he just gushes about you. <laughs> it's so nice. <laughs> What do you want to be when you grow up? Relax. <laughs> Amen. My God. <laughs> That's awesome, Janie.、Um, I think we should just end it right there.、Uh, okay. If people want to find your work, we know there's JanieGeiser.com. Are you on social at all? I actually am. I've been. This is one thing in the pandemic. Like, I had an Instagram account, and I had a, somebody I met like a year ago at McDonald's. She goes, "You should really use it more," you know. So in the pandemic, I made it okay. I'm going to use my Instagram more. I don't go on every day,、yeah. but I am posting much more regularly. Oh, so, excellent!、Um, and I post both things I'm working on and things from my walks. Like I like、oh, to、cool. walk around and just observe little things. So,、um, so somebody you could find me. I think it's Janie Dot Geyser, and I am on Facebook. It's my name. I'm easy to find. Amazing. I'm not on Twitter. I don't want to know that much. I don't want to have that much information. <laughs> I feel you there. Same. Same. Yeah. Same. And Facebook. Maybe I go on once a week. That's、yeah. definitely a lot. <laughs> For, yeah. Facebook is like, oh boy, what a. I don't engage in political discussion there. I only engage in real discussion, and I will say, I I get get out and vote. Yes, and at CalArts,、mm-hmm. I've been very involved in the registering to vote, get out to vote. I, I, I think it's our only chance. Yes, for everything, for climate、mm-hmm. work, for everything, for racial justice, for everything. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the converted, so, but well, but for- anyone who thinks voting is not important, that's that's blind. Yeah. Oh, you—you've heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Vote! <laughs> Thank you, Janie Geiser, for that wisdom. I agree a hundred percent, and、um, I applaud that work in addition to everything that you do. This has been really lovely. Thank you for the time. Thank you、today. both. Thank you both. The Puppet Pod, hosted by Josh Rice and me, Sarah Stabley. Produced and engineered by also me, Sarah Stabley. Additional editing by Josh Marks. Theme song and incidental music by Seth Borgolzia. Additional music by Hazar and Scott Holmes. Executive produced by Dixon Place and the New York State Puppet Festival, a program of Shake on the Lake and Josh Rice Projects. Support is provided by Dixon Place, the Jim Henson Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Council for Wyoming County Community Arts Grant. This decentralization program is made possible in part with funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Administered in Wyoming County by the Arts Council for Wyoming County. To make donations, please visit shakeonthelake.org or dixonplace.org. For more information about the artists featured on our podcast, please visit www.thepuppetpod.com.